Welcome to a special season of the Neuroethics Today podcast, produced in collaboration with the International Neuroethics Society, or INS. In 2021, the INS held an annual meeting focused on the theme of social justice and neuroethics. In this special season of Neuroethics Today, we will revisit some of the major themes from that meeting with the help of some incredible guests. Join us for an exciting glimpse into an INS annual meeting. Welcome to episode four of the social justice special session of neuroethics today barriers to social justice work in neuroethics i'm your host today uh timothy brown along with uh the amazing juhi faruqi and in this episode we're going to explore some of the practical and cultural challenges facing meaningful social justice work in neuroethics to dig into this, I'm joined by Keisha Ray, Assistant Professor at the McGovern Center for Humanities and Ethics at UT uh, Health Houston. Hello, everyone. I'm also joined by Oliver Rollins, Assistant Professor of American Ethnic Studies at the University of Washington. Uh, nice to be here, Tim. Good seeing you again. Let's jump in with a number of questions about this wonderful topic. Um, so what social justice issues need to be addressed through and or within neuroethics? Do we need an anti-racist neuroscience? There are a number of calls for us to do um, diversity, ethics, inclusion, justice work within bioethics more broadly, uh, but also within neuroethics more specifically. Um, what do you think of, uh, about these calls and what do you think needs, uh, needs to be done? Uh, right, so I guess I can go ahead and start us off. Um, and I'm starting off because uh, I actually have used some of Oliver's work when I have done these lectures on how to be an anti-racist researcher. And so I've been doing it for graduate science students, right? And um, we talk a lot about who, who should be taking the lead in anti-racist research. And so I always start from the assumption that we do need an anti-racist neuroscience, we do need anti-racist neuroethics. And I actually had a student one time that sort of gave me a little bit of enlightenment. She was like, can we backtrack a little bit and ask the question, do we need this? And so it really made me think a lot about um, the kinds of authors that I was including. And I was making an, an, an effort to include diverse scholars, right, to sort of uh, be the model for what I'm saying to students about anti-racist neuroscience and neuroethics. Um, and what, what we had a conversation about was sometimes to get change, you have to be intentional, right? You have to make the effort. It can't just sort of say it'll happen and just rely on other people to do the work. Sometimes you have to do the work and you have to do it intentionally until it becomes the point where it's just a part of the profession, where it's no longer intentional. And so that's where I come from, is where I really think that you have to uh, have certain people take the helm. And I think publishers are, are a really good place to start having publishers um, have certain guidelines for how race is being used in the work that gets published to them, making sure that they're publishing diverse work, making sure 
that, uh, that they ask the authors themselves to think about who they're including as co-authors and whose work that they are citing. And so I talk a lot about this in this, in this realm of, of teaching that I've been doing, but it really makes me think about just the intentionality of our work, right? And I think a lot of our history with diversity in institutions and in higher ed institutions, you kind of see that a lot where you have people saying, hey, we gotta be intentional. Then other people are sort of, um, I don't know, I feel like there, there's some, they get a little bit of backlash or some people who are hesitant because they think that this means that other people aren't getting their shine if you have this intentional work. But I really, really believe that if you don't put the work in, then you're going to always be lacking. The profession will always be a little less relevant if you don't put in that intentional work. So I think anti-racism work has to be a little bit intentional. I think some people may disagree, but um, I think you, you got to put the work in. Yeah, to, uh, so what I, I, I just first will say, I totally agree with what uh, Kichak's given us. Um, I, to take some of Keisha's advice, would also kind of step back again. And so the first thing I ask myself is, um, can we have an anti-racist institution? So what does it even mean for institutions, particularly within the U.S., to be anti-racist, right? Um, and I think one of the challenges for us right now is to also be begin to think about anti-racism as beyond diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? That's a necessary step, but that's not, you know, that doesn't really give us kind of anti-racism in the ways in which I think uh, either, you know, social theorists and others have kind of thought about this, uh, this movement that, that, that to kind of bring back uh, another point that, that Keisha brought up about this intentionality, and I really like this idea that we have to have an intentionality to our work. And that also makes me think about kind of the politics between, not just politics between science and society, but also even our work within kind of neuroethics, where are our politics as well, right? And that there is no way that you can divorce this, you know, politics out of this work, right? That, that you just can't. You can't not, not think about, you know, what are going to be the larger effects of this work. There is no such thing as divorcing the politics out. And so if, I, if we go back kind of thinking through that, then we have to first ask this question, you know, what does it mean for any institution, not just science, right? Even what does it mean for a university, right? Because that's what we're seeing now, really, like some of this is kind of being stemmed from the calls from universities who have moved, particularly after the, you know, summer of 2020 or this kind of racial reckoning that we could probably say that never really happened in the ways in which we wanted it to happen of 2020, you know, what happened to that? Kind of move where we wanted to to make this leap to anti-racism, and now we can we can start to be start to evaluate exactly what have institutions done since the summer of 2020 to move toward anti-racism. And I think much of what was happening is that we were substituting kind of advancing more DEI, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion types things for anti-racism, and that's not the same, right? And so we can begin to ask questions like, okay, well to move toward anti-racism, does it also mean that we have to deal with racial capitalism? And we would argue, yes, right? So what does that mean for science? What does that mean for us within ethics and neuroethics? And what does that mean for an institution, let's say like the institution in the Intimis at the University of Washington or any other kind of institution to actually then deal with racial capitalism, right? So we can ask questions like, you know, are, you know, what, what types of, uh, um, and, and, and Keisha brought this up, what are the kind of larger kind of science bodies beyond the researchers themselves going to do, right? Because the other thing that we've done is we've individualized this a lot, right? To say, okay, go do, you know, 
you know, the Harvard implicit bias association task test, right? And, and go see what your biases are. And that is supposed to be some kind of move to, that allows us to then understand the other, but also allows us to do anti-racist work, which I think all of us will kind of argue that that's not quite enough. It doesn't really tell us what to do. That doesn't actually give us any kind of direction, right? And it's a very individual level change. And we're looking about, we need to be thinking about systemic changes and institutional changes and structural changes. And that requires way more than just asking neuroscientists to be anti-racist or adding more black and brown people into, into a lab. Right, I think it's it's really, it's an institutional question, right? What is the institution going to do? And I think part of that too means reckoning with the past of that institution, but then also the past of, of neuroscience and neuroethics, right? A lot of our professions, um, like my own and particularly in bioethics, a lot of the past work of bioethicists or of physicians or nurses were used in very racist ways or to be proponents of uh, structural racism. And so, and neuroscience is no different, right? The past of neuroscience was used to, to uphold these false beliefs about differences in races and differences in, in race and the relationship between cognition and and to promote uh, inferiority of, of certain races. And so if we don't acknowledge that this is the past and that there's a lot of those remnants still around, right? And how is our current work being used either contribute to anti-racism or dismantle it and acknowledging that it stems from this, this past structure that we have in neuroscience, then we're not doing the work of anti-racism, right? Not, and that's not to say that everything is historical, but there is historical basis. We can't deny the history when we're talking about the contemporary state of the field and of the profession and, and what we're going to do moving forward. But I think uh, Oliver is, is spot on when he talks about it's institutional. It can't be just left to the individual. What is the institution going to do to help us in this anti-racism uh, movement or this anti-racism um, actions that we wanna see upheld? So I'm really glad that uh, the conversation went in this direction now, because I think this is a really good segue into the next thing we were going to ask anyway. Um, and so we've, we've touched on this idea that, you know, it's uh, institutional, that we need to think about the structures, the institutions that we're actually in, how they operate. Um, and so thinking about that and thinking both on the individual and the institutional level, uh, maybe you, got, you all can comment on uh, what sort of competing interests you see within the institutions, uh, either institutions that you're in or academia in general, um, that act as barriers to that social justice work, again, both on, you know, an individual level and also on that sort of institutional change level? Uh, sure. So, um, so I think the biggest thing that, that uh, comes to mind for me is this question uh, that we have kind of within academia around productivity, right? So what does it mean to be an academic? Uh, what does it mean to be a productive academic within the academy? And I think those interests are probably our, some of the biggest competing interests when we think about social justice and neuroethics. So what does it mean for us to like, you know, only to almost try to divorce ourselves again, kind of go back to Keisha's point earlier, kind of divorce ourselves again from this like intentionality in these politics, right? And almost to be this like in this sterile, almost kind of silo. And that is what it means to kind of produce and that's also what it means to kind of be a good academic, right? So we're asked to do things like, you know, just publish, give talks, you know, and teach, even though we know teaching is not always 
up at the top with the menu or other things, right? And go after grants, right? And so like, these are the things in which we say that makes you a very good academic. But I think particularly for us who come from a tradition out of either black studies or Africana studies. And I think also, you know, places, you know, um, indigenous studies or Latin American studies, you know, women's studies, there's an intentionality that goes back to reaching back to the community, right? And so part of that has always been a social justice part, right? That what, whatever we do is actually supposed to be impacting the communities that we're representing, right? And I think that has always been a tension in between these area studies and, um, and, and academia. And I think it's also going to be a tension now when thinking about, well, what, what, is it, what does it mean to, for a you know, neuroscientist to do social justice work, right? And I think the other, you know, so there's a, there's a question that I guess I'm asking about, you know, of, of helping us reevaluate what we call priorities and reevaluate what we call productivity, right? So why isn't, you know, like the work that many of us do around, you know, maybe diversity, equity, inclusion, but even moving towards what we call it, moving towards kind of anti-racism or a more socially just kind of society, why isn't that recognized kind of as part of what we're supposed to be doing as academics as well, right? So there's a as a question there that that it's really hard to answer, I think, for academics to both do the work that we are supposed to be doing and also kind of answer these questions or do that kind of social justice work that many of us want to do, right? And so we have to ask that question around the productivity. Um, I think we also have to, to, to think about, uh, again, kind of these institutions and, and the support that they give, right? And so like, you know, one of the things that we, we're constantly told that we need to be doing are things like, you know, collaborations and the disciplinary collaborations. But we can ask the question like, okay, where I, exactly how is that, um, you know, how, how is that looked at particularly within in certain disciplines? So I come from a sociology. I know Tim comes from like philosophy. You know, those are not places in which interdisciplinary work is actually looked as like, you know, as something that's really good, right? You you're, you're often look to do very solo author kind of things. And so this is also stifling then, uh, or a barrier then, I think we could say to social justice, because I think social justice is going to call for these kind of interdisciplinary collaborations that we've been saying we want to do, right? But there's really no infrastructure for it. And it, it, this is both a question for academic institutions. This is also a question for the funders, right? And, and how they fund, how they put out calls for journals, right? And how they respect, and, and even the way in just, I think, disciplines uh, beyond, you know, let's say neuroscience, uh, because the scientists tend to to do these kind of collaborations much more often, right? Then I think the social scientists do, right? And so this is also a question: and what do we do as people who are in neuroethics uh, and our role, I guess, in, in social justice and those barriers? Right. I agree. I think overall, it's an institutional structure, right, of of academia. So. Uh, allow me to, to uh, bring you into my anxieties a little bit. So I'm currently up for promotion um, and, and promotion to tenure, right? So I submitted my, my packet, right? I'm thinking about, am I going to get tenure? Am I going to get promotion? And I am a humanities scholar, right? I have a philosophy background, but I'm in a medical school. And so the things that medical schools value are sometimes very different than what humanities departments value. And so as I'm, you know, the past few years crafting my CV, crafting the kinds of academic uh, events and things that I attend, I have to think about how do I work within this institutional structure of promotion and tenure, right? But how do I also fulfill those desires that I have to study Black people's health, to study anti-racism in academia, to study anti-racism in, in neuroethics, right? 
how do I make sure that I can combine these two so that way I am fulfilled in my career, right? Because you also want that. You can't, as much as we're required to do, you have to be fulfilled to do it. Because if not, then you're just not going to do it, right? Um, but then also, I want the spoils of academia, right? I want the promotions. I want the tenures. I, you know, I want all of that stuff, too, because I also think that I deserve it for the hard work that I do. But you're, you're constantly in this, in this balance of doing the work that needs to be done, the intentional anti-racism work, because that's what you think the profession needs. But also, am I going to, is the, the, the promotion committee going to be responsive? Are they going to think that that's truly academic work? Are they going to think that's valued work? Are they going to see that I'm the only one teaching classes on anti-racism in these different professions and these different disciplines? Is that, does that matter to them, right? Does it matter that I'm giving our students this information? Does it matter that I'm collaborating with these scholars on this anti-racism work or that I'm giving these invited lectures on, on anti-racism? And so that can be a potential barrier because you're at this weird place where you have to, you wanna work, you wanna do what you want, but you also have to work within a system to get to do the work, right? And we all know a lot of people when they do get the spoils, they still don't come back and do that work. But I, you know, you don't want to be one of those people. At least I don't. Um, and then also, I have another passion of public of public scholarship, right? But again, I'm working within an institution. Do they value this op-ed article that's in the local newspaper? Do they value me on the news talking about anti-racism in this latest study that came out that that impacts uh, Texans' lives where I live? And so it's, it's always this balance of doing the work and then hoping that your institutions value that work, because if they don't value it, then people don't do it, because we went to school for too long, we did too much work for us to not get the spoils of, of our careers. And so those can be some barriers to, to doing the work, because also we know public scholarship, that's where people read it. Right. If you publish something on anti-racism in a very big journal, some sort of online form, right, and you have thousands of people seeing it, sometimes you can publish an article and there's five people who see it. But also the the online, the peer review journal is the one that is valued. Right. That's the one that gets you the work that gets you the tenure and the promotions and all those things. And so it's really just a, a value system that can stand in the way of the work. What do these institutions value and how do I work within that to do the things that I value, but still get the spoils of the career that I've worked towards? Yeah, and if I could just add one more thing in there, because you really got me thinking about something, Lisa, and that is the fact that much of what we are asking, you know, or demanding, I would say, are these kind of institutions to do much of this can be avoided, right? Like, so like, you know, I was asked this question in a, in a talk one time about, you know, what can we do to get, you know, more of our senior white, you know, men, uh, colleagues, right? Particularly those who are in like, you know, full professor, you know, positions to do more work on diversity, equity, inclusion, or do more kind of anti-racist work. And one of the first things I said was like, why would they do it, right? There's no, there's nothing within the academy that rewards you for doing that work. In fact, it becomes a, the way we have set up the academy, that is a hindrance to being productive within the work. And so they know that they don't have to do this work to kind of get to these positions, right? But then many of the people like us, you know, it's it's not really a choice, right? We 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 feel like we have to do this kind of particular type of work, but you're not going to get rewarded for it. So that that I think there's something about that idea of how we've structured again productivity, how we structured the academy in a way that you can avoid that. And the other example that it made me think about is 
when I was at my previous institution, University of Louisville, one of the things I, I remember talking with my students about is we had set up, you know, the, the you know, like most campuses and most universities, uh, particularly with undergrads, a lot of them are asked to take, you know, some type of class to fulfill some diversity, equity, you know, cultural kind of thing. And oftentimes, particularly within sociology uh, or, or some like black studies, one of your classes kind of counts as that kind of class, that general class for everyone to come in. But I asked my students, you know, what does this mean when we set up an institution that kind of operates in this way? And what I meant by that was essentially what the university of the institutions have told us is that when we do race talk or when we do diversity talk or when we talk about these issues, they'll happen in a particular space, right? So they'll happen in the space of my classroom. But that really also means that we're not asking or we're not demanding for things like this to be brought up in other spaces, right? So you don't have to worry about talking about these things. You can avoid talking about these things when you go to your chemistry lab. You can avoid talking about these things when you go maybe even to some of your history classes, right? And only within this space that you really have to talk about these things. But you can't have an anti-racist campus if you've siloed off where some of that work actually happens, right? And you also then have demanded of certain individuals to kind of do that work and not others, right? And so these are one of those things that I think, these are kind of some of these lessons we have to think about now, right? So yes, there's, it was a good thing to get everyone to kind of take a credit like that and to make sure that everyone goes to a class like that. But then the repercussions of this is the way we set up these institutions is they don't actually have to do any of that work or talk about these things outside the classroom. They don't have to apply anything that we're saying outside the classroom. You know, they only have to do that work within that classroom. And it's a demand of just certain individuals, right? And so that's another thing I think we can think about rethinking the institution itself. Yeah, it's interesting um, because I think this conversation is sort of touching on this tension uh, that exists between, you know, what is sort of on the face of it, right? What institutions will kind of put out um, in their language and their messaging um, or, you know, even how uh, academics frequently end up talking about the academic path, right? Frequently, um, when you talk about doing this kind of work, doing any kind of anti-racist work or doing any kind of community outreach work, um, people are kind of like, oh yeah, well, you know, that's all stuff that's going to help advance your career because that's what institutions want to see these days. Um, but then there is that really distinct tension between that and the, uh, the sort of reality of the culture on the ground, uh, as you're just kind of describing, right? Where, yeah, okay, maybe you have to go take this course or maybe you have to take this, um, you know, mandatory training. But when you get into the lab, that's a, that's a sterile, apolitical space that's no longer part of that uh, part of that conversation or it doesn't have to be part of that conversation or maybe it shouldn't sneak into this and then think about who's doing that work right who is the one talking about it in that safe space where they're allowed to talk about these issues of race or gender or sexuality or whatever it's always the same kinds of scholars doing that work right so then we also think about that burden as well this is a pretty bleak picture. Not only are we uh, disincentivized uh, from uh, doing the work of justice, uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, um, by the systems themselves, by the, the, the priorities of, of the institutions that we work in and work across, especially when we're expected to do those interdisciplinary collaborations and our uh, 
our different departments don't line up on what values they have, uh, what counts as good scholarship, as you said earlier, Keisha. Um, not only are we uh, often uh, recommended to do this work in these special spaces where it's safe to do that kind of work and we cannot bring that work back into the laboratories back into the the collaborative spaces that that we're 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 told that we're supposed to be cultivating not only are we the ones that have to take on the emotional labor of doing that uh jedi work and and on top of that the folks that we want to join us in that work are often uh disincentivized from from doing any of that work themselves. So they saddle us with it, right? I don't know how many times I've been in collaborations where uh, we're supposed to write a paper together on justice in, in, some, in some context, but this it's, it becomes clear halfway through the collaboration that this is just something that my colleague wants to put their name on and wants to saddle me with the work. Um, and I know that both, uh, both of you have been through this uh, before. Um, it's a pretty frustrating situation to be in. Like, how do you even navigate those kinds of situations? But I'm wondering, um, what can what can we do uh, to encourage real, meaningful engagement in social justice? Definitely within uh, the spaces of, that neuroethics works within, so the the brain sciences and the humanities that are adjacent, uh, the humanities fields that are adjacent, but but more broadly in our academic institutions, because it's clear that this is not just a neuroethics problem. This is an institutional problem. This is an academic problem. Um, this bleeds out of academia. This is this is life now, and how how do we um, encourage this meaningful engagement? in ways that go beyond the what uh, Oliver was saying earlier was a kind of lip service that we that we saw in the supposed racial reckoning of 2020 uh, where many institutions issued statements statements of solidarity with the black community statements in solidarity with black lives matter how do we go beyond these statements in both both in broader institutional contexts and within neuroethics contexts Right. You know, so I, I tend to be uh, a realist, right? I tend to be a, a just very practical. And so I think stemming from this, this broader conversation about institutional responsibility, I really believe in that. But I do think that because we are talking about institutions, institutions care about money, institutions care about uh, image, and institutions care about how they are, especially if they're public funded, uh, institutions, right? They care about how they are appealing to donors, how they are appealing to state legislators. That again, gives them money, right? So it comes back to that. So for me, I think it honestly has to be about showing these institutions that uh, these little nice, cute little mission statements that they put on their websites, that the work that we're doing is going to support that and then supports their funding, right? It has to be tied to the things that they care about. And then I think um, you, can, you can get your goals accomplished that way. Now, again, that's not always nice. It's not always um, idealistic, but I think at least at, at some beginning point that we have to at least start with 
hitting them for the things that they care about and understanding how institutions work and understanding how institutions think about the people that make up the institution. And so I think it has to be just super practical in showing that this can jeopardize funding, this can jeopardize um, students attending your institution, um, and this can jeopardize donors, this can jeopardize your public image. You don't want to be the institution that does something um, that ends up on the news in a bad way, right? You don't want to go viral on Twitter for something that you did bad and everyone's tagging your institution because, you know, you did something. Um, and But the, when it does, when the bad things do happen, institutions respond, right? because they also don't wanna be seen as someone that didn't respond to something that they did poorly. And so for me, I think it's about understanding institutions and um, talking in their language. Again, not always pretty, but you know, sometimes you gotta do the not pretty things. Yeah, I, I again agree uh, with Keisha saying, and I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, because the, the money and image part, as, as, as like they are, you know, like they're, we know that they're at the top of the list of how institutions think. And so I'm like, you know, I'm trying to think beyond that, you know, kind of what else can we do to kind of encourage the long term? And I, I, I want to come back to actually something else Keisha started with, and that is like remembering history, right? There, there, to, you know, I, the more I've talked with kind of neuroscientists, and I, and I would even argue folks within kind of bioethics as well. Um, it, there, there seems to be, to me, I keep saying that there's this kind of profound misunderstanding of like what the social construction of race is, what systemic racism means, right? What these things actually mean and how they actually operate. And so one of the reasons I think we continue to come back to these kind of individual level changes like, you know, implicit bias is because we constantly think that it's just going to be changed at this individual level. And at the individual level, once it's changed, we've taken care of it. And to me, that's a misunderstanding of what systemic racism is, right? And that's also a misunderstanding of this kind of idea that racism in some way is only about punishing a particular type of group and that there's not privilege and benefits in the ways in which it actually operates and that it operates in a very normative way, right? So intentionality doesn't actually matter many times in the ways in which discrimination and racism actually operate. And so I think there needs to be a way in which that message needs to kind of be at the center of some of the work that we do within neuroethics as well and kind of teaching uh, both in, in kind of our colleagues. I don't think all the work needs to be on, you know, neuroethics to teach or sociologists to teach everyone like this. You know, I think there has to be an effort on the, the way in which, you know, these individuals uh, who are doing this work actually do this work. And it reminds me of, uh, you know, one event that I was at. I remember when I was a, a postdoc. And this actually was a message that came from um, Dr. Carl Hart, who's at Columbia, did the neuroscientist at Columbia. And I remember we were having this conversation about, you know, it actually had, you know, this was a, a meeting between, you know, social scientists and biological scientists and supposedly trying to bring us together to kind of think about these issues. And of course, you know, oftentimes we're just kind of arguing with each other around certain issues. And one of the issues was around thinking about race. Uh, and I remember someone had said in the audience that, you know, that neuroscientists and others or geneticists don't really are not really trained in the social sciences or in these kind of areas like folks in social sciences. So we got to kind of give them, cut them a little slack when they don't understand what these things mean. And I remember Dr. Carl Dr. Hart stands up right before his talk and he says, well, if you're going to study the social, then you damn well should know the social, right? Like there's no reason why the excuse of I don't really understand what the social construction of race means should be a valid excuse 
right? If you're going to actually study these things within society, because these are part of like, there's, there's enough, you know, there's a huge, you know, sociological kind of like literature on this, right? And so there's enough work that you can put, we're all academics, right? You can pull from this work and kind of understand this work, right? And the opposite can't happen, right? There's no way like me or Tim could go into a lab and say, we know nothing about neurotechnology. We know nothing about fMRIs, but let us into your lab and let us do Like, no, it doesn't work like that, right? Like we have to actually learn neuroscience. We have to actually know all this stuff on top of the disciplines that we were trained in to kind of do our work. And, and we don't ask or don't have that same demand, I think, for scientists to do this work when they want their work to kind of impact society, right? And so there's a question there for what neuroethics can do about kind of bringing that message, I think, more to the forefront, right? And thinking about that. And again, I, I guess the other points I would just kind of think about and reiterate is that, again, we, we have to go beyond kind of these DEI, like the statements you brought up, right? Going beyond DEI. I, I mean, the one question that maybe I was thinking about as you were saying that, Tim, was like, what the hell do we do with all these DEI statements that everyone writes for jobs? Like, I swear, like every job I've ever applied for, they ask you for this DEI statement. And I'm yes. always wondering, like, what do we do with the, all of these DEI statements, right? And when you ask that kind of question around, like, whose position or enact is like a catalyzed has changed, I'm like, well, there's probably been a lot of stuff that's been written in these DEI statements, both sometimes lip service, but both maybe sometimes things that we actually probably should be doing, the institutions should be adopting that they're not. So we have all these statements, again, kind of this lip service where we got people like applying or we have, or even people with jobs, we all have kind of DEI statements somewhere on file, but no one goes back to those things and say like, okay, well, are you actually gonna implement these things that you said, or how are you gonna move toward these kind of goals that you said you were gonna do within your DEI statement and things like that. So I think we can kind of come back and start thinking about that. Uh, and particularly, you know, and, and the last thing I'll say is kind of going to what Keisha was saying about going up for promotion, I think, we could also be rewarding, right, individuals who are doing this type of work. And on top of that, you know, the, maybe the more controversial thing is punishing people who are not doing this work either, right? I mean, we punish people who don't do enough publications. We punish people who don't get enough grants. We punish you if you do bad on your teaching. If this is actually part of the mission statement that, in the, that, that universities are saying that they want to have, they want to have a more socially just uh, environment, then I think it's fair, it's beyond fair to say that all of us should be working together to be doing that. And when you're not working or actually doing those things that you, you too can get, you know, uh, penalized, I should say, maybe not punished, but penalized in your, you know, tenure and promotion or just, or just in your promotion, right? Like that you're not doing part of the mission statements of the university. It, it seems like the bigger question is about how do we make this a part of the culture? Right. Every institution has a culture, things that they value, things that they tell their students to value, things that they ask their faculty to uphold, um, whether they're doing committee work or in the classes or we have these codes of conduct at certain universities, certain institutions. So it's really about how to how do we make anti-racism and social justice a part of the culture that neuroscience and neuroethics works within. Right. So it can't be just about neuroethics and neuroscience because they are a part of a bigger picture. So how do we make it a part of the bigger picture? And then it will necessarily have to be in neuroethics and neuroscience. And I think that's really the that's really when it comes down to what does your institution value? Because the culture shows you what they value. Absolutely. I, I, one last thing I'll, I'll say on this before we move to the next topic, and that is um, that second part of the question, who's best positioned to enact like this callous and change? And I, you know, one of the things I'm really been thinking about now is the you know, younger, I guess, folks who are up now kind of 
have come through, who have kind of grew up in graduate school and, and throughout through kind of this Black Lives Matters movement, this particular type of social movement that we've been having, you know, throughout the, you know, since, you know, the latter part of the 20, uh, the 20 teens, um, up until now where, you know, I think particularly like, you know, um, you know I have on this shirt that says I support Black and Neuro, right? So like Black and Neuro is like one of these, you know, institutions or building kind of this institution of like, you know, of change in that way. But it, it raises this question too, for me, this is one of the kind of my research questions that I'm having is like, you know, what exactly is, you know, what, what are the goals for like this, this group of folks, this, this younger group of folks who do have this more socially justice kind of minded kind of set of goals within their research, how are they gonna implement these things within the lab, right? So like, if we historicize this, right? I raise the question of I'm I'm I believe right and I'm still kind of this is probably more of an empirical question but I believe that very similar things probably have happened throughout history where you have catalyzed a particular type of like youth movement I'm thinking about you know the 1960s probably right where you had you know a lot of probably folks within grad school who were also really energized about social change but we can also say by the 1980s it's really hard to see how some of that social change was implemented within the science. Right. Like where were, you know, where how do we trace that kind of thought into the science? And then what can we do to make sure that this group of folks, right, can actually implement some of those things within their science, right? Can actually say that I'm thinking about social justice and I'm also doing, you know, work in neuroscience, or maybe I'm doing work in physics or I'm doing work in English, right? But how do they continue to kind of have that kind of focus on social justice, right? Um, in my work, right? And so I think one of the things that we who are best positioned, I think, are, are young people because change just really takes lo a long time. But it does beg a question, though, what do we do as others who are already in this position to make sure that they actually can have that space to do that type of work, right? That the institution doesn't just kind of eat them up when they come in and then, you know, all of these goals around social change move to the side so that they can publish more, go after more, you know, grants and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think this point about culture change is really, really critical to all of this, right? Because even when we talk about, okay, you know, maybe we can have uh, support for individuals to do this kind of work, or we can, you know, penalize individuals for not participating in the work, it's that ultimately still kind of comes down to an individual level, right? And when we think about um, the kinds of things that people will put in like their DEI statements and, and that kind of thing. Often, you know, I think Oliver made the point about, you know, scientists aren't trained as social scientists, but even when, you know, uh, even when they're maybe able to understand, okay, this is a systemic issue or this is an institutional issue and understand what that means, uh, they're still not trained to be able to understand, all right, well, what do I do about it? Um, or like, how can this be addressed, right? So then it still kind of comes back to this individual level of like, all right, well, I can, I don't know, try and mentor some more minority students or, uh, you know, do some community outreach. Um, but it's still, you know, people write their their DEI statements and they're kind of like, here's what I personally as an individual do in my lab uh, to make my little corner of academia better. Um, and so this concept of, you know, the culture itself needs to, to shift in order to uh, to kind of make that happen. Tim, you, had, you wanted to jump in? I have a worry about the combination of a number of the issues that were raised uh, by both Keisha and Oliver. If all of us academics have graveyards of DEI statements, 
Um, and I, I definitely admit to having a, a few folders full of DEI statements. Um, and if, if we're being called on to do this kind of work in the way that Keisha describes, uh, a way that, that only allows it or only sanctions it to be done in certain spaces. And as Judy just said, you know, like if, if some of these DEI statements are filled with plans for doing or implementing changes in one person's or one PI's small corner of academia. Um, that could be a positive thing, but I often worry about the the mechanism of a DEI statement, a me the mechanism of, of plans to transform academia. Uh, I worry that sometimes they can turn performative because in, in a hiring process, um, the DEI statement is, at least I see it, uh, as a kind of leveling of the playing field, not in the favor of people of color, but in favor of everyone else. And so when I write a DEI statement that that is an attempt to demonstrate the kinds of things that I've been doing, uh, to, to promote justice in my corner of academia, um, I'm being evaluated against, let's just be frank, white people who have to perform in order to get jobs, get promotion, and so on and so forth. So I think that we should, um, we should be cautious. We should be cautious about how mechanisms like um, DEI statements uh are are being implemented and who really brunts uh, whoever who really takes on the burden of those statements because i know just thinking introspectively uh f for the sake of writing a dei statement um i think well i've this this work that i've done it's it's reflected in my cv it's reflected in my personal statement it's reflected in the content of my work, my uh, intellectual histories, everything about me says DEI, but I can still lose out on a promotion, uh, a promotion step or not get a job or not get invited to something because I fail to demonstrate that I am doing enough, especially in a space where all of us are being asked to do quite frankly, too much because the burden falls on us uh, as people of color, um, uh, as marginalized people. And so this, this last part of the question, the, the who's best position to enact or catalyze change. Um, I guess my big worry is that we're not asking everyone else to do enough. And, and that indicates a deep systemic and cultural problem. Um, especially when we're the ones who are penalized for not performing it the way that white folks can perform it. Right. I, I used to joke that uh, by next, my next DEI statement, if I ever wanted a new job, I'm just going to attach a picture of myself, right? And that's, I'm not going to write anything because I feel like I shouldn't have to. Yes. And, you know, it. and I held on to that for years. I'm like, hey, I am your DEI, right? Give me the job. And then I also thought about, though, something that a colleague pointed out to me, that not all the people that look like me are doing that work, though. 
And so right. sometimes a picture is not enough. There could be people who look just like me who could care less about any of this anti-racism, social justice stuff, um, and think of it as something not important to who they are, who they are as a scholar, right? So I also think we have to think about that, that it's not just, but I also believe there's a lot of work that's being done and existing. I can't tell you how many times Black students have been uh, in a class that had nothing to do with social justice and just been like, you're my first Black instructor, right? And they're mm -hmm. about to graduate college or they're in medical school and they've never had a Black instructor. And so there's a lot of work that you do just by being who you are. Um, and so I, I do believe in the the existing part. But, uh, but again, to be frank, there's a lot of a lot of people um, that are not doing this work that you you might look at them and think that. So I think in, in that, I'm not defending the I statements. I just think that we can't just make those assumptions. But it's also about power, right? Because, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll share something. Um, in the last job application that I did, I started off my DEI statement with saying why I don't believe that I should have to do this and maybe they should rethink about making this a blanket statement but I already had a tenure track job. If I didn't get that job, I would have been just fine because I had power in that moment. There's a lot, we all know the mark, job markets in academia don't give people the power to just throw away a, a chance at a, at a tenure track job, right? So I also think we have to, um, but use that power, like Oliver was saying, you know, the people who are already in those positions, what are you doing for the next? Because who knows what that, uh, that statement could have, taught that, that hiring committee about how they should be, uh, what, what documents should be a part of their application. Maybe they learned something, who knows, maybe they didn't, but I was already in that position to do that. And maybe I could, you know, help this process in some kind of way in my, in my very small way. But again, it's about the power and the people who already fulfill those positions. What are you doing to pull people up? Like Oliver said. Yeah, and if I, you know, I think it's a really, really great point, Tim, that you brought up because I, I, I always think that um, much of the work that we've been trying to do around either DEI or you know now anti-racism, which I don't think is a true anti-racism all the time, but in its kind of image of the way uh, our institutions say anti-racism, um, these have always been things that you know people of color would both benefit the most and also are the most likely to get hurt from it, right? So the, you know, the brunt cost of it, it's gonna fall mostly on people of color. And also if it actually works out, it can potentially help, you know, people of color. But, you know, I think white people always have, you know, have a particular kind of neutrality, neutrality in this, right? So like they tend to be the, you know, like I remember I did a consultant for this group and, this major Fortune 500 company, and uh, this came up where you know we we're talking about DEI statements, and the people within the in the company, the people, particularly people of color, were a little upset because they said that like, well, you know, the leaders who are pushing this are both white, right? And at the end of the day, they're going to be the ones who get the promotions for saying that they implemented these kind of DEI things, even though of course they're supposed to help us as people of color. But they are going to be the individuals who are going to get rewarded within institutions. And I think that's kind of what Tim is saying, right? They, like the people who are probably going to be rewarded for it often are white because we're also expected to do this, right? It's always expected, right? That kind of joke that Peach was saying about the about sending in the picture, but it's also like, well, we're expected to be that already, right? And so the fact that like that we even have to do a separate document when so much of our work is already included 
you know, doing some of this work, like, like Tim is saying, like, you know, how do I separate out my DEI work from, you know, the work that I'm actually doing within my research when both of those things are absolutely, you know, overlap all the time. And so that very thing there is, I think, a, a particular mechanism, as Tim is saying, that then rewards a particular group of people being able to say that, like, I can do this kind of separately from the work that I already do. Right. And so I do think we have to think about that as, as, as part of these kind of mechanisms and maybe, you know, thinking about this as a, as a kind of a blind spot that we have in the ways in which we have set up kind of institutions and how we reward certain people or reward certain mechanisms. But I also think many of the things that we're discussing, and this is, I'll be quiet after this and let you guys go to the next point, but like many things that we're, we're discussing are not simply um, questions about neuroscience or neuroethics or even institutions, but these are larger questions within society. Right. American society likes to use very uh, individualized, neoliberal kind of kind of solutions to things. Right. Putting it on the individual. So it's not surprising, I guess, that institutions are also using the very same type of interventions uh, that we have in larger society, because that's how we see, because we don't we also don't really treat racism as a systemic thing. Right. We treat it as a very individual thing. Right. And so individual changing an individual and not changing an institution. And so I think these are also lessons that we got to think about in larger society um, and all of the mechanisms that we've had to kind of address racism have always you know, kind of focused on this very individual level. Very, very often, I would say, focus on the individual level. Yeah, I just want to I just want to comment that I think this uh, this sort of like smaller conversation around the, um, you know, what's in your CV, what your CV represents and what your career represents uh, versus what kind of gets put aside in this DEI statement feels like very allegorical to kind of what we've been talking about all along, right? This idea of like, you know, does the culture support and value a thing versus, you know, is the, the DEI statement basically your paper job application version of Oliver's Classroom where those things are allowed to happen and then everything else is kind of separate. Um, all right, so I, I want to kind of pivot this a little bit because um, we talked a, a little bit about uh, earlier on in the conversation different sort of stakeholders in this, right, and the role of journals and publications and institutions and funders um, and in particular sort of how those, um, how those structures are set up and, and how they operate um, within, within themselves, right? Um, and so I think I would be interested to hear uh, from you, from y'all, what your uh, what you see as sort of the blind spots, particularly when it comes to funding priorities, um, but also you know more generally the priorities of the institutions. And I think we've touched on a lot of this, but maybe uh, explicitly, kind of what blind spots do you see uh, in this? Um, I I do. Oliver mentioned this earlier, but I think there's a lot of value in teaching. And I think there's a lot of value in sort of teaching is more about preparation, right? And I think there's there's a lot of value in preparing these students to think about these things, to think about what role they want to play in the work for social justice, the work of anti-racism, right? And a lot of the when you when you're applying for funding right you have to send in the narrative teaching is sometimes on there sometimes it's not or if it is they say just send a few lines right out of a, a six page single space document devote just a couple of lines to teaching or uh, again in the promotion process right teaching is there was a 
uh, very minor part of it. The rest is the, the output, right? What are you producing? That's what really what we really care about. But I really think that, uh, especially when you start early, right? Like, again, I work with medical students and we talk a lot about these topics, but I really believe that you have to start much earlier than medical school when you're talking about social justice and medicine, anti-racism and medicine, that kind of thing. But we just don't value it as much. It's seen as something secondary. And we all know or had those professors where you could tell they came in and left and they just wanted to go back to their office, lock the door and, and go research and, and write, right? And so I think that that's a certain, a part that we have neglected is just that value of preparing the next generation and being examples for the next generation to sort of take on, take the charge and, and do this stuff because uh, they, they really will be the ones who, who, who continue this work um, after us. And so whenever I see like my Gen Z students and they're really interested in these kinds of things and I'm the only class they've ever had a chance to have these conversations and their fourth year medical students are already about to go out and be doctors, it really makes me sad that they didn't get more of this early on. But also I'm very happy that at least they had this and they're having it right before they're about to go and be, you know, full on residents and talk about this stuff. And I think that's really with any discipline, right? With neuroethics, with neuroscience, with sociology, whatever your discipline is, philosophy, you are teaching to prepare the next generation to take on these issues and to contribute to these issues alongside you, because eventually they become your colleagues. I've seen students that grow up and now we're presenting at the same conferences because they're, you know, they're a professor too. So you have to sort of uh, think about the impact of teaching, but we just don't value it enough in, in institutions or in uh, funding sources don't um, value it as much. So I really wish that we thought of teaching a little bit differently as more of a preparation than, than a burden like some people think of it. Yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, I'm trying to think, because of course, Keisha gave a, a great answer again. So I'm trying to think like beyond some of the funding things, you know, uh, you know, cause so, so one, I think, you know, one funding issue is that there needs to be money that's allocated specifically for social justice things, but it also needs to be beyond kind of these, um, I guess um, it, it needs to be something more permanent, right? Because I think what ends up happening with so much of the stuff that we do on social justice or diversity, equity, and inclusion, is that these things that come up and they go through a little funding cycle, you know, two or three years we do, you know, some money has been allocated to increase diversity or something like that. And after the two or three years, they go away, right? And there's no real kind of way to evaluate kind of how well these people are doing uh, their job as far as kind of like helping, you know, make diversity better or, or whatever that may be. But there's also just no long-term solutions, right? Because we don't see this as something as, you know, fundamental to kind of in institutions. We don't see this as fundamental to disciplines in the same way that we would fund certain types of research, right? And so why is it that we don't have permanent kind of funding that, that deals with kind of social justice uh, stuff? And then, and then I'm trying to think kind of beyond money, there's things that, you know, one, neuroethics, and particularly us as, you know, folks who do this work, but even, you know, neuroscientists who do this work, um, being able to kind of use your scientific capital, right? Like, I mean, on many of these, you know, many of these campuses, you know, scientists have a particular type of capital that social scientists and folks in the humanities don't. Like, people listen to them a, a lot more, right? And so, 
um, they need to be interested in these issues as well, right? So this this can't be one of those things where we simply just say, you know, I'm agnostic to this, right? Scientists can't be agnostic to this. There's no room here to be, you know, neutral, right? You actually do need to make a decision because if you decide that you're gonna be neutral, you have made a decision and that decision is you're okay with the setup that we have right now, right? And so I think they need to be more vocal. We need to have ways in which uh, to tell folks within neuroethics, neuroscience and others to be more vocal on these types of issues because there's ways in which we need to be pressuring institutions to be doing more. We need to be pressuring our funding bodies to do, do more. We need to be pressuring journals to do more, right? Um, at the individual level, I know we've been talking about moving beyond the individual level, but there are certain things too that I think beyond money that could help too. And that is like, you know, course releases for folks who are kind of doing this type of work, right? Giving them course releases, giving them protected research time, you know, uh, mentoring resources, right? There's a lot of ways in which we're asked to be these mentors, but many of us don't have the resources to be these mentors, right? Mentoring resources is another thing that I'm, I'm just kind of thinking um that could help right it just it, it's kind of give us kind of more than than simply uh, uh the work that we're going to already do i guess rewarding you for kind of the work that you're already going to be doing because you're already going to be mentoring folks in so many ways and so i, I guess yeah I'm, that's the kind of things i guess i could think about that go beyond kind of our funding priorities because of course and keisha brought this up from the very start you know this is about image and this is about money and so i obviously there's ways in which we, you know, we need to be able to spread money around, but we also need to think about this in a much more social justice way. And so the last thing I would think about is how do we communicate or how do we translate what we do within neuroethics to the community? So beyond what we're doing on campus and beyond our job or role or whatever that is, whatever that role is, and that's probably another whole podcast around what's the role of neuroethics within, you know, these institutions to, you know, who, when they're talking, when we're talking with neuroscientists, what exactly is the role, but I think for me, part of the role has to be translating the information that we do to the community in a way that they have a better understanding of what's happening within these neuroscience labs and that they actually are much, much more able to participate, I guess, in these decisions that we make, these large decisions that we make when we think about funding that goes toward neuroscience, particularly neuroimaging, which has, you know, neuroimaging and genetics has a crazy amount of funding, you know, in places like NIMH versus, you know, other traditional, you know, behavioral kind of research or, or sociological kind of research. So um, these are things I think the public should be informed about, right? And many of the issues that we do within our work, you know, the public should be informed about in some kind of way. So there's a question about being able to translate that, but then also the language to do that, right? And so I think we need resources to be able to have, to be able to do that, right? You can't just simply sit up there and talk about, you know, neurotechnology, Tim knows this, you can't sit up there and just talk about neurotechnology so people because they be like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? So how do then do we uh, craft this message to actually put it in the language and put it in a way in which they understand, but also in a way in which they understand what are the politics behind this and what are, what's at stake for them to be knowing this, right? And so I think that's a huge blind spot of the ways in which we've siloed ourselves off from the community uh, and being able to kind of reach back out to say, okay, yes, the work that we're doing is also important for larger society in these ways too. Absolutely. And it sounds like we have something of a consensus, uh, given the barriers that exist within academia and broader American society and internationally, um, the, the best way to, um, the best way to allocate money is to allocate it toward um 
efforts that give people the resources to tear down or or transcend those barriers uh and that's going to look like something uh, it's going to look like money for training the next generation of scholars to do this kind of um anti-racist work uh or activist work uh it's going to look like teaching releases it's going to look like um you know different um different grants that prioritize public scholarship uh public outreach community outreach it's going to look like grants that encourage a deeper not a shallow collaboration between humanists working on social justice issues and scientists who are um who are uh worried that they don't have the right training uh, to go after some of these topics or don't see the role of um, social justice uh, focused research in their lab. Um, it's, it's, on the, it's on the funders in some way, uh, but it's also on the institutions that, that support or reward the different kinds of, uh, the different kinds of uh, scholarship that we do. And so, yeah, absolutely. Sure. And Tim, I, you just made me think about something too, and, and this is not totally within the question, but you raised it now, and I think it's important, and that is um, there's an importance too for us to think beyond the U.S. because yes. I think we tend to be very U.S.-centric uh, in, in the ways in which we think about these issues of social justice or anti-racism, and that these things operate very differently outside the borders of the U.S., and that we also need to be thinking about what does it mean for us to, let's say, neuroethics to be doing, you know, anti-racist or social justice work, let's say, in Germany. But also, what does it mean for us to be thinking about the ways in which these technologies are becoming more and more prevalent within the global South, right? So, like, if we can go throughout places, uh, you know, throughout the African continent, Asian continent, South America, and we can see where neurotechnologies are becoming more and more um, a commonplace. With, within the, these these regions too. And so what does that mean for us to be thinking about what are the potential impacts of that? And so like this really got me thinking with folks like um, uh, Robin D.G. Kelly's work on kind of imagination, also Ruha Benjamin, which he talks a lot about thinking about imagination and thinking about, you know, how do we um, imagine, you know, a better space, but also how do we get ahead of some of these problems, right? So not playing catch up, like not waiting for some disaster to kind of happen with some neurotechnology and being set and then coming to analyze it, but thinking about what will happen as these things are moving toward, you know, where 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 are these things going, right? And so particularly I think in the global south has raised a lot of questions. What does it mean for like neurotechnologies to be expanding within places within Africa, right? What does it mean for you know neuroscience to become you know something big within South America and, and how we need to kind of be thinking about this? How does that change what we mean by anti-racism or social justice uh, in that way that expands well beyond I think the the our US bounds? I mean, even our neighbors up north in Canada, you know, critique us by thinking about, you know, that we think about even anti-black racism in a very specific way here when there's black people in Canada and it looks very different, right? And so we need to be thinking about those issues too that makes it much more complicated given that, you know, again, most folks within neuroethics don't even know what social construction of race means, but that is part of that conversation, right? That's part of what we're saying, like saying that race is socially constructed, I mean, it's not the same, it doesn't operate the same in every uh, context. Thank you for uh, 
<laughs> drawing out that uh, possibility, that possibility of doing international neuroethics. Um, as someone who works closely with the International Neuroethics Society, this has come up many, many a time. Uh, and especially in the context of, of a worry that I always have of, of people taking um, anti-racism as an American concept, uh, taking justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion as American concepts, and uh, erasing the histories of you know the global African diaspora, of the transatlantic slave trade. This is a world problem. It's not just an American problem of colonialism and the eradication uh, and uh, disenfranchisement of 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 Native Americans and Native uh, Native Native South Americans, and um, when we recognize this possibility for an international neuroethics, I think we we get fair, what seem like creative possibilities for scholarship, but now seem like obvious things that we should have been thinking about all the time, like. I'm thinking of Laura Cabrera's work on environmental neuroethics as it intersects with indigenous perspectives, right? Um, this idea that, you know, the the climate disaster that we're all living through uh, has the biggest impact on people of color, on indigenous people, on uh, people who have more to lose, you know? And so neuroethics can be extremely, extremely effective in this area if we would only fund that kind of research, um, if we would only do the kinds of community engagement that are required for doing that research. But yeah, so thank you. Thank you for that, Oliver. I, yes. I, love, I love that this is, uh, this is kind of expanded at the tail end of this conversation to really just, you know, encompass everything. It feels like we've kind of moved from a narrow scope to the broadest possible scope. And, and that's important, right? I think that's the direction that, that we all want to go. Um, so I want to maybe give each of you, Keisha and Oliver, like a minute uh, if you have any kind of concluding thoughts or final things that you want to leave listeners with. Right. Um, I think really just a summary of, of what we've said. I think when we talk about anti-racism and social justice and neuroethics, I think we have to think about a very comprehensive picture, and that includes historical uses of neuroscience and then how we're thinking about our work now. Um, and I would really challenge people to think about their place in neuroethics or neuroscience, to think about how they want to contribute, what their legacy in neuroscience is going to be, and what, what kind of um, the state of neuroethics and neuroscience are, are you leaving for the next generation? Um, because we all, of course, always want that to be positive. Um, so yeah, I would just, I really think that some of the, some of the work has to be institutional and some of the work has to be a sort of self-interrogation of your role. What are you doing? Are you being conscious of how your work is being used? Are they, is it being used for anti-racist purposes or for, or for racist purposes? Um, and so I think there's, there's two levels here. And so to really think about what you want your role and what you want your legacy in the institution to be. Yeah, I'll, you know, again, kind of do each other's thing and, and, and just think about some of the, or reiterate some of the points, I guess, that I was saying. And I, I think the first one is just about neutrality, right? And that you can't be neutral, right? That it, neutrality leads us with, you know, this kind of unwillingness to deal with some of this, right? And, and, a, and, a, and a route to escape doing some of the work that you should be doing when we say we could be neutral. And so 
I think, uh, and I'll reiterate a point that I kind of wrote in, in, that, in one of the pieces that I wrote about towards anti-racism in, in nature, and that was to, uh, you know, beyond kind of the neural ethics of race or racism and thinking about a politic, right? And that, so beyond an ethics, right? Beyond this kind of questions of maybe morality, right? That I'm, I'm saying that maybe we need a politic, right? We need a, we need a kind of unyielding commitment to social justice, right? That's, that's rooted or centered kind of in the work that we do, right? That comes out of the work that many of us already do. And that, that's, that's, that's beyond kind of an ethical question. That's a, be, that's a beyond kind of a right or wrong, right? That's, that's a more of a question of saying a politic. And I think that politics then forces us to deal beyond the individual, right? That means that when we're saying a politic, we're also talking about kind of these institutional changes, right? So beyond kind of that individual change or kind of right or wrong, we're talking about a larger kind of social or systemic change, right? And so I think we have to, 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 to potentially move toward that, right? To kind of think about, you know, what does that mean? You know, I think we have to also think about um, science or, or really even, even neuroscience, but just science beyond kind of these questions about race beyond the biological sciences, right? So one of the questions I, I, I keep thinking about is like, what does it mean for physics to be, you know, anti-racist, right? They don't technically deal with humans, right? In this way. So what does it mean for like these non, these, 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 these disciplines that are not based on biology, not based on kind of humans to be anti-racist, right? I think that's a, that's a much different kind of question because a lot of times these, these things fall to us who are in the humanities, social sciences, or in the biological sciences to answer these questions because we thought that we deal with kind of humans or societies. But anti-racism means a total system change as we've been saying, right? So it does mean that we would be asking questions about what does it mean for us to change, you know, physics to be anti-racist. And also at the institutional level, it begs questions beyond students and, um, and faculty and asks this question about what does it mean for, for staff to be at an institution that's anti-racist, right? Many of the of people who are on staff, right, in, in these places come from very marginalized backgrounds, right? I mean, this is part of the larger kind of legacy with capitalism and institutions, right? Because these are poor paid, these, these jobs are not often well paid. So what does it mean for it to be anti-racist in that way, right? And so I think it begs a, it begs a question, and this is maybe where we started with Lakeisha saying about like almost restructuring everything that we do, right? A total systems kind of change means asking these types of questions that we often don't think about, right? So asking questions that go beyond, maybe these are kind of, beyond science or extra scientific in some ways, they go beyond kind of just a who's in my study, right? Kind of kind of questions or, you know, what are the morals to doing this particular type of work to, you know, should we even ask a question like this, right? And that's not just a moral question, but a political question. Who will it actually benefit and who will it, who won't, you know, who won't these things benefit? And that that is just as important as asking some of these moral questions. And I think as neuro, within neuroethics, we also need to be thinking about a politics thing. And to all the folks out there who are daunted by the task of changing an entire system, I'll, I'll leave you with these words of advice or these, uh, these words of encouragement. Changing an institution is a group effort. It doesn't fall on any one person by themselves to change an entire institution overnight. This is, you know, group work, intergenerational work. Uh, it requires intention, as Keisha said earlier. It takes a reckoning with the past. It takes uh, introspection and group, uh, group agency. 
coordination, money. <laughs> it takes all all of these things. And so don't feel too uh, discouraged. Um, we're here with you. Um, and we're working toward uh, a transformation in our field of neuroethics and fields beyond it. And with that, I want to bring this podcast to a close. So thank you for uh, joining us for this episode on barriers to social justice uh, in neuroethics. Thanks to our, our guests, Keisha and Oliver. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks to my co-host, Juhi. You were fabulous. Um, and tune in for another episode of Neuroethics Today. conversations have piqued your interest, check out the International Neuroethics Society website, where you can find recordings from all 2021 annual meeting sessions. Speakers from today's episode can be found in the sessions titled Developing an Anti-Racist Neuroscience and Neurotechnology, Neurolaw, and Social Justice, Predicting and Preventing Criminality in Imprisoned People. Did you find this episode particularly interesting or have something to say about the topic? We want to hear from you. We encourage our listeners to chime in and help us build community by recording a brief voice message. Check out the episode notes for a link to record your message. And to everyone, thanks for listening.